This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Dragon Meat and its additions to the Height Library. The ever-impending apocalypse. Rules for Play by Forum Gaming. And the Affair of the Poisons. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. It's time once again to engage in ill-concealed gloating under the rubric of the travel advisory. And Robin, uh, in a rare example of travel advisory, we both get to gloat uh, sort of mutually and severally uh, about dragon meat. Yeah, so this is an annual event that's uh, held usually at the end of uh, November, but it's become creeping into December, and I think next year it's creeping even further. Uh, We are uh, typically flown out by the largesse of uh, Pelgrane Press in order to engage in Pelgrane Summitry and discuss projects for the next year. And then we attend this uh, lovely little uh, calm but increasingly busy uh, 700-person event at the salubrious confines of the Kensington Town Hall in Kensington in the uh, deepest, grooviest London. And uh, since we've been going over, it's about five years or so now, uh, we've seen like a real sort of uptick in how busy the show is. It used to be kind of uh, busy at the Pelgrane stand at the beginning of the morning, and then there might be a little uh, flurry at the end, but it's now become very, very busy first thing in the uh, when it opens, and then a steady uh, stream of uh, commerce and palaver throughout the day. And I think Simon did uh, better this year uh, at the Pelgrane stand, significantly so, even though there was no big new product, as there usually is for Dragon Meat. So that is just all on the strength of catalog titles, which uh, betokens uh, strength not only for Pelgrane, but for the UK roleplay scene in general. And, uh, of course, we would not dream of taking entire credit for the vast uh, expansion of Dragon Meat's busyness and uh, commercial rewards. But obviously, you know, you can do the math. <laughs> Yes, there are people do have to come to uh, pay tribute to us. There was we this year we did not run into anyone on the tube who recognized us and offered us Stroop waffles, but uh, you know it's that, that's a once in a lifetime thing. So uh, viewers or I guess listeners will have already heard the uh, live episode that we did from the uh, Kensington Town Hall of our podcast, and it was uh, this time they expanded into the council chambers themselves so that they used to have a kind of a small little seminar room and now they managed to fill a much larger space and uh so that was uh perhaps the strangest venue i've ever done a panel in it, it was very groovy i mean in addition to having the uh storied arms of kensington behind us with the names of all the kensington high counselors or whatever they have there all their little voldemorts and such uh there was also a very uh, nifty fiber optic lighting effect, and there were desks with microphones and voting things. I think that if we could have figured out how to make the uh, internal electronics work, we could have passed legislation. <laughs> yes, or run sort of uh, some impromptu LARP at any rate. 
Um, now, I wish that I had seen more of the panels. I was kind of uh, uh, happily ensconced behind the Pelgrane uh, stand, uh, but hopefully some of the other panels would will get out there. There was a, a retrospective of the Fighting Fantasy line and Games Workshop in general from uh, Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson UK, uh, which I hope will come out in some uh, recorded form at some point. Um, and also I understand there was a piece on the health of the English game industry in which the participants reflexively diagnosed the health as weak despite the vibrant evidence all around them of how uh, I've never seen the UK scene in such a bustle, seen so many uh, companies on the go, seen such a sense of excitement and fun among people uh, attending the event. But of course, the old uh, how do we get people into this dying hobby refrain uh, is somehow uh, irrepressible even in the face of positive evidence. Yeah, the uh, panel, uh, one of the things that is interesting about that panel is that it could have been two or three different panels given the number of people uh, representative of the English uh, hobby game industry that were there, which is not something that's even been true about previous Dragon Meets. And I, I think just the fact that you could have had three simultaneous panels on the health of the English game design industry at Dragon Meet is itself an indication of the health of the English game design industry uh, at Dragon Meet or anywhere else, really. I mean, at one point it was, uh, you know, Games Workshop and Hogshead, and that was it. Yeah, and now there are, you know, uh, at least uh, two, uh, you know, what you might call Killer B uh, publishers, Pelgrane and Cubicle 7, plus uh, Mongoose, plus... Um, uh, still, uh, like you say, uh, Games Workshop and, and their little empire of fun, and then a number of uh, increasingly interesting and productive independent game designers. So it's, it's really kind of a phenomenal uh, scene. Now, the night before the show, we got to have a bit of uh, traditional fun at uh, Shea Rogers, and I ran a drama system session for you and uh, Ralph Shemin of Pro Fantasy, and uh, another uh, group of people who are also writing series pitches for the Hillfolk project, uh, to wit, uh, Steve Dempsey, Paula Dempsey, uh, and James Wallace. And of course, Simon Rogers uh, played as well as cooking for us. And what we did is we played an episode of The Waitleys, uh, which Chris Lackey will be writing up as a series pitch, but I just used the logline for, and we improvised from there and didn't actually need anything more from that. And that's a game in which basically you imagine a show that's like the riches except with Cthulhu cultists. And so there's a generational split within this family of cultists as to whether to adopt the newfangled ways or remain with the, uh, the old starry tradition. And, uh, that was a, a lot of fun and, uh, it's a real refreshing thing to get to, uh, play with people who I've known for years. But in this case, you know, James uh, Wallace and I go back you know, close to two decades now, but this is the first time we've ever had a chance to play a game together. And uh, we would have had a lot of fun, even if it uh, were not for the delicious uh, suckling pig and, of course, the obligatory sticky toffee pudding. Yeah, the um, the, the, the Friday night game session is uh, one of our many uh, lovely traditions in, uh, in Dragon Meat. Another is uh, to go and uh, <laughs> celebrate Simon's... Uh, uh, the fact that no one has told Simon that the relationships between publishers and writers have fundamentally changed since the Edwardian era uh, and uh, dine uh, uh, very well at his expense. Sadly, you were not uh, able to make that because of plots by enemies seen and unseen. Yes, I was uh, unwell on the day where you got to go to the uh, Michelin-starred restaurant. So, uh, But, you know, the, uh, one is a road warrior. One must occasionally suffer a casualty of the road. 
Right. And uh, we would have poured out a, a glass for you, except the glasses were all very, very full of tasty wine. So we didn't do that. Uh, yes. But we drank to you. You don't want extraordinary wine being poured out. Uh, I, that would be a terrible tribute to me. I would insist yes. on your drinking it. Now, one of my great pleasures of uh, Dragon Meat is vicarious book shopping, whereby I accompany uh, Ken and Simon to uh, uh, Foils and usually Treadwells, although I missed that again this year, and see what you purchase. Because I live in a small downtown apartment. I cannot afford uh, the room, really, for a ton of books, uh, much less the fact that I'm a cultural producer and can't really afford to be a cultural consumer. So I enjoy the fact that uh, you instead purchase many books on my behalf and then tell me about them. And so I've uh, taken photographs of the vast pile of uh, books that you acquired this year for the Height uh, Memorial Library and thought I would uh, run through the list and uh, see what attracted you to them and uh, perhaps what you've gleaned from them in the uh, few days since you acquired them. Uh, and I think uh, we'll start with your big treat to yourself, uh, which was Outside the Circles of Time by uh, Kenneth Grant, or should I say the aforementioned Kenneth Grant, since we've done him in a previous segment of Consulting Occultist. Yeah, um, th this was basically... Uh, the, the, the book came out from a publisher named Scoob Esoterica, I think in 1980. And it's uh, this middle of his first trilogy, I think, or the end of his first trilogy of increasingly daft uh, uh, neo-Crowleyan speculation, uh, which tied... Uh, the reason that I became immediately interested in it is it tied both UFO gray aliens and the works of H.P. Lovecraft into Crowleyanity in uh, a way that I found both salutary and delightful. But I'd only read sort of summaries of it, and I'd read some of his other books that I was able to find uh, relatively inexpensively uh, back before uh, the, 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 the sort of the field blew up. I was able to buy, I think, you know, a couple of them in sort of dinged up condition, uh, sold by book dealers who, before the wave of the internet, did not know what books were worth, and so just sort of thought, well, it's a stupid book of badly written black magic that no one cares about, so obviously it's not worth very much money. But that stopped being true uh, for a good long time, so I was unable to find Outside the Circles of Time. And then it was reprinted by a, a company named Starfire uh, that then, you know, sold completely out of it and took their, their, their money and ran for the hills giggling. And so it, I could see the cycle beginning again of uh, copies of Outside the Circles of Time getting ever more expensive and unable to uh, be purchased by me, and so to celebrate my my uh, new, my full time contractorship with Pelgrane that began on Dragon Meat Saturday, I I bought myself a signing bonus, and I I bought a copy of Outside the Circles of Time in the lovely new Starfire edition. So, so do you have I, a, a Holy Grail volume that you would love to stumble upon for next to nothing at a uh, garage sale or? Otherwise, uh, in the clutches of some unaware bookseller. Ab absolutely, uh, the uh, <clears throat> the first uh, book ever published by Arkham House, Outsider and Others, uh, their Lovecraft Compendium, uh, which uh, is now I think thousands of dollars uh, in in any condition whatsoever. It would be a delight to find a copy of that that I could buy without getting divorced. <laughs> uh, that that would be a lovely thing to have both that book and an intact marriage, which so far is not in the cards. Okay, so would-be benefactors take note. Uh, mm -hmm. Another book that you picked up was The Mercurial Emperor, The Magic Circle, uh, Rudolf II, and Renaissance Prague by Peter Marshall. And what led you to, to grab that one? Well, I have a number of books on uh, Prague. It's one of the, the great cities of the world. 
just as a city and also as a place where all manner of magic weirdness has happened. And much of that magic weirdness happened at the court of Rudolph II. I have a couple of other books tangentially connected to Rudolph's court. And also, uh, our old buddy John D. spent some time at Rudolph's court and his scryer slash parasite uh, uh, Ed Kelly stayed on at Rudolph's court after John D. left it. And so it has a strong... Uh, Elizabethan magic connection. Also, uh, scholars of Rosicrucianism believe that Rudolph's court was one of the models for the Rosicrucian uh, uh, Chamber of Wonders because uh, Rudolph uh, was an avid collector of crazy stuff, and he put it in rooms full of crazy stuff. And so this book, I suspected uh, correctly, contained not just the the John D. and uh, Kepler and Brahe stuff that everyone knows about, but also went into... Uh, Rudolph as patron and collector of the arts, and then uh, in extra bonuses talked about his waves of melancholia and clinical depression and paranoia that led him to skip mass and be accused of being possessed by the devil, uh, and all manner of wonderful things. So it, it, it was a terrific book. I read it on the plane back. Uh, next up is uh, The Black Jacobins by C.L.E. James, uh, which I gather is a history of the Haitian Revolution. Yeah, uh, C.L.R. James is... Pretty much, uh, he's sort of Trinidad's great uh, man of letters. He is one of the uh, sort of um, uh, the, the the first fruits of decolonization as people began to get national sentiment after having been held down by the variously beflagged man. Uh, he was, uh, at the very least, a Marxist and probably an avid communist, which makes his history of uh, the Haitian Rebellion suspect. Uh, in any larger sense, but certainly it's tremendously well-written. He was a tremendously good writer, and it's always good to have yet more perspectives on what is probably the most important, in uh, certainly in throw weight versus how often it's been studied, uh, revolution in, uh, you know, the modern world. After ours and possibly the French, I think the Haitians may be the third most important if only because of the knock-on effects that it had on ours and the French. Well, and it's just an incredible story, and one that I think does not get enough play because it's not considered to be central to the uh, Western, that is, uh, chalky-complexioned world. Uh, But it's really an incredible story, and I'm going to have to uh, pick that up if it's a well-written narrative of it. Yeah, I mean, the the writing is terrific. I mean, it's just great prose, and it was written in that sort of, like I say, that first bloom of uh, decolonialist patriotism and anti-European uh, sentiment, and so it obviously has an aspect of that to it, which is fine in a history of a revolution against a filthy colonizing power like the French were, but it's also, as I say, C.L.R. James was a Marxist, and so there is going to be a lot of ahistorical back projection going on in what is, as you as, as you mentioned already, just a phenomenally uh, interesting and terrific uh, and horrific in a lot of places, sort of story of, of, of human conflict and, uh, and and rebellion. And it's also a case of something where the incredible violence of that uh, uh, rebellion is something that has still not resolved itself in Haitian society. So you've got that weird situation where there are two countries that occupy that small island, and one of them relatively pacific, and the other one uh, racked by... Uh, dictatorship and violence and, uh, you know, just one horrible problem after another. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, the, the cynical thing is to say that uh, that's because one of them was run by the French. Uh, and But I think that in a lot of cases, when you look at the actual practices of the slave owners 
in the Haitian third of the island versus the Dominican uh, two thirds of the island, you you make a, a there's a really strong argument there that there's just unimaginable psychic damage that was done, and the miracle is that anyone in Haiti uh, is is sort of uh, well adjusted at all after that horrific uh, set of uh, of sort of uh, colonial and, and slave experiences that they went through. Uh, next up on the pile is a biography of an ever-popular figure. It's uh, Lawrence, the Uncrowned King of Arabia by Michael Asher. Do you have a lot of Lawrenceiana in your collection? I do. Uh, for whatever reason, I sort of looked up one day and noticed I had about four biographies of Lawrence of Arabia from various sources, plus Lawrence's book, uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And it was sort of borne in on me that uh, this may have just been, you know, an accretion disc from the movie, but by the time you have, you know, uh, four or counting Lawrence's book, five uh, works on a topic, you sort of have a collection on it. And so I've been keeping an eye out for other worthy uh, works of Lawrenceiana, which this one seemed to be. It's written by a, a British Arabist, which is, you know, a, a sort of a, a warning bell for biographies of Lawrence. But this guy has apparently spent a lot of time, you know, writing across Arabia with Bedouins and doing all those sort of Lawrencey things. And so, interestingly, I think, and I've, I've, I've skimmed the book, I haven't read it uh, in detail, but I think what that has done is inoculated Asher against a lot of the, the, the mysticism of Lawrence, because he's done it himself, and it's like, well, you know, it's not easy, but you're you're not some sort of mystical uh you know galahad figure if you do it and he's got a, a fairly i don't want to say cynical but it's a more uh measured and uh nuanced uh portrayal of lawrence than i would have expected given the uh, the book flap so that's just interesting all to itself it's not a full on uh debunking uh like uh, one of my biographies is and it's not the brilliant hagiography that in their own ways, the Lowell Thomas book and the Robert Graves books are, uh, which are, you know, really, if you want to look at, at, at sort of the ways to paint uh, heroes, uh, reading uh, Lowell Thomas's book and Robert Graves's book back to back is an interesting way to do it because Graves, of course, is looking at it from a classical mythic perspective. And Lowell Thomas has always got that sort of middle American pragmatic, you know, we're trying to build a, a better world on the back of this, you know, weird British guy. Uh, going on. And so when you have a, a topic like this, it's already represented in your collection. What sort of criteria do you use to d determine whether a potential new edition makes it into the uh, height collection? Well, with a, with a topic like um, uh, uh, 19th century paleontology or civil war espionage or biographies of Alexander the Great or uh, works on Lawrence, where there's not just, you know, uh, it's not just an interesting topic, but it's one that is going to be you can predict it will be visited again and again and again. At some point, you, I, I start to look for something that uh, is, is going to go on about the author that's going to make that author's take on it more interesting. And in some cases, it's just that they're the first person to do a, a, relative, a relevant piece of research. Uh, the the, um, the uh, One of my books on Civil War intelligence is by the first guy who ever bothered to go to the U.S. Army's uh, uh, records of their intelligence department in the Civil War and read them. And he, he got access to the first half of those records and he read them all. And so his book ends sort of abruptly as Grant takes control in the, uh, in, in the East. And I can only hope that he's working on a sequel. But in, in the case of a, of a Lawrence book, uh, like I said, it was, it was the fact that Asher had, had done all that other sort of, uh, exotic stuff and was therefore going to come at Lawrence from a different perspective. The title actually is what, you know, sold me on it initially, the Uncrowned King of Arabia. 
and the notion that uh, that uh, this would look at his his role in in Arabian uh, uh, propaganda and Arabian myth was a uh, was was a was a sell. But I don't think the book is actually about that. I think in in this case, his editor really hooked him up well with a good title. So. Uh... Speaking of categories that are well represented in the height collection, we now come to one with, uh, looks like the red skull on the cover for Fuhrer and Fatherland, SS Murder and Mayhem in Wartime Britain by Roderick de Norman with uh, three ends, two at the end. So what uh, led that to leap into your hands? Well, um, as I've mentioned before, I was uh, working on the uh, occult Nazi book for Osprey, and so I, I always have an eye out. Uh, sadly, the, um, the Nazi section at Treadwells used to be called, when it was in its old location, uh, 20th Century Eccentrics. <laughs> <laughs> which which is, is so magical that you, you just want to buy books out of that section yes. just to reward them for that. It, it grew out of their minor unpleasantness section. Exactly. Their, their, um, uh, their shabby behavior uh, collection <laughs> that they have. But yes, um, so I, I was looking for that and I, I pulled that down because uh, SS in wartime Britain seemed like an interesting notion. And it, what it turned out to be was sort of a true crime uh, story about a murder that happened in a prison camp in Britain carried out probably by the secret SS uh, uh, power structure within the prison camp. And that, you know, once you think about it for two seconds, of course, you know, the German POWs are going to work themselves into some sort of bizarre parody of their of their home society uh, with informers and secret police. And, you, you can't uh, let these things go unorganized. Yeah, you know, you know, strutting jackbooted thugs running the place. Uh, and so the book, I think, is going to have a lot of, you know, serious questions about how the British could have allowed such a thing to happen. And it's like, you know, one expects that the answer is uh, fighting a war, busy, don't care. But uh, the, the notion of a true crime story taking place in an SS POW camp has, an all, has all manner of, uh, of, of potential, both dramatic and uh, from a game perspective. Yes, there so sounds like a, a something of a movie option thing going on there that somebody's neglected. Yes, indeed. Speaking of uh, minor unpleasantness of the 20th century, you also uh, picked up Hitler's Master of the Dark Arts uh, by yes. Bill Yenne. Yeah, that uh, is a occult Reich uh, sort of uh, biography of Himmler, primarily. It talks about a lot of the uh, Anand Erba and similar uh, activities in uh, passing. Uh, it is, it is skeptical without being really well researched, which I suppose is, you know, half the battle. <laughs> um, it's uh, got a lot of very uh, attractive, color, colorful pictures. It's very well laid out. Um, it talks. I mean, I don't know a, a tremendous amount about Heinrich Himmler, and having read this book, I still don't know a tremendous amount about Heinrich Himmler. But it provides a number of, of, of sort of leads for future research. But since I was able to catch him in several uh, errors of fact, I, I can't lean on the thing at all, which is a shame because you do like to have uh, a, a sound book on the Nazi occult to backstop all the crazy ones. Well, yeah, I guess there's a couple of axes. Is, uh, how crazy is it? And if sane, uh, how uh, well-researched the sanity is. And the other, uh, the other axis is that a number of the crazy books are considerably better researched than others. Um, Peter Lavenda's uh, completely nuts uh, Unholy Alliance is, however remarkably well-researched, and in every place that I was able to check him, he has he, he does not lie about a demonstrable fact, although the uh, cut, the coloring he puts on it is 
uh, eccentric, to say the least. Um, speaking of classics of the forum, which I don't think we were, but here we go anyway, uh, it's Kim Newman's Nightmare Movies, the new edition. Yes. Uh, this is uh, Kim Newman, who is uh, known, no doubt, to all fans of uh, British horror as the author of Anno Dracula, as well as a number of terrific uh, short stories. He has written the Diogenes Club thrillers, um, a set of uh, adventures of Moriarty under the rubric uh, Hound of the Dubervilles, which will tell you pretty much everything you need to know about Kim Newman. But he's also been a film buff since forever. And he, the interesting thing about this book is because he wrote it uh, and basically, you know, he, this is a revision of his previous book that came out, I think, in 83, and he did a, a revision that took himself up to the end of the 20-year period, from 68 to 88. He is uh, unburdening himself of opinions that now are fairly, uh, you know, uncongenial. Uh, he has very few good things to say, for example, of John Carpenter's Thing or of uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, both of which I think have been settled into the horror canon as absolute masterpieces. And so it's it's interesting to see a an avid consumer and great lover of horror film tell you in um, uh, plain spoken terms why he deprecates those two works and then spend an entire chapter on Italian cannibal Holocaust movies which he uh, apparently thinks are worth an entire chapter. Uh, and I'm not going to say he's wrong. I, I uh, bought a whole book of Italian cannibal Holocaust movie discussion for my lovely wife. Uh, but the uh, but but it, it's an interesting sort of a historical snapshot of where Kim Newman's mind was and maybe where horror thought was in 1988. And now, of course, no one admits to ever having thought that. That's the, uh, the great drawback of having one's uh, ephemeral reviews uh, immortalized in print. Yes. Uh, next, we come to uh, a promising sounding title, which is uh, Yellow Kid Vile, the uh, autobiography of a uh, famous American criminal uh, by uh, J.R. Yellow Kid Vile and W.T. Brannon. Uh, so what uh, caught your eye about that one? Uh, what caught my eye about that one is the Yellow Kid is a legendary grifter and con man in American uh, criminal history. He's, uh, in, in many cases, if you don't know who invented a con, People will say, oh, the yellow kid came up with that. So he's been given credit for the ring uh, uh, the, the ring trick. He's been given credit for the bottle. He's been given credit for a lot of the, the real classic uh, cons. And in the show Leverage, uh, the, the, one of their sort of uh, episode uh, supervillains was a guy who learned the trade of, of the grift from his father, who had learned it from his father, Yellow Kid Wild. So the, the notion of the Yellow Kid is sort of a, a strong mythic presence in the history of American con artistry. And my wife is a fan of uh, the, the, the con, uh, for uh, as she is of many different kinds of true crime. And when I am in Treadwells and in Foils, it behooves me uh, to make sure that I pick out something for uh, Sheila to read so that uh, she does not apply knowledge that she gets from other true crime books immediately. <laughs> and there's a great photo of him on the cover, which very much looks like the archetype of the brain character in every old-timey heist movie, uh, including the Sam Jaffe character in Asphalt Jungle. Yeah. Uh, next, we come to Old Shanghai Gangsters in Paradise, which I'm sure is going to be fodder for your upcoming uh, Trail of Cthulhu China book. Yes, yes. This is basically something I bought uh, for Deathless China to be able to uh, use that and uh, you know build out Shanghai. The thing about the China book is that there's going to be a number of cities that need to at least have some sort of uh, of, of detailed look in, and Shanghai 
is, you know, first of all, it's one of the great world cities of the of the uh, 20th century, having been basically created ex nihilo by European col- colonialism in the late 19th, like Hong Kong, and having blown up into uh, a huge uh, uh, metropolis, even in the 19-teens and 1920s. Uh, for, and, of course, to Call of Cthulhu players, it is legendary as one of the loci of the Masters of Neolothotep mega campaign. So, knowing the details of Shanghai... Uh, all of the, uh, the, and like many, you know, port cities and many large cities, it had a gloriously uh, uh, bent uh, criminal syndicate, and uh, details on those guys is going to be valuable. And this book, unlike a lot of books about Shanghai, uh, stops with the uh, uh, communist uh, takeover and fundamentally deals with the period that I'm actually interested in, with the teens, 20s, 30s. And so I'm I'm looking very much forward to milking that for all that it can provide. And there's no better proof of your thesis about uh, the real world being the most fascinating setting for games, because if you were to invent a Chinese city with all of these factions uh, competing against one another, one could certainly never do as well as the real history of Shanghai during that period. And, and people would call you a racist for making it up, too, which is the thing. I mean, Shanghai is, is phenomenal. It, it's really like the backdrop to a, to a, to a Shaw Brothers film. And, and you use Shanghai as well in um, uh, one of the uh, stunning Eldritch Tales, right? Uh, yes, indeed. There's a scenario called Shanghai Bullets, which is uh, very popular. And if you are a Hong Kong cinema fan, uh, there's a huge chunk of your favorite films that are set in Shanghai during that era. Uh, now we come to 1888. London murders in the year of the Ripper. And I gather this uh, takes the interesting tack of looking at all the murders that the Ripper probably didn't commit. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, sort of a... Oh, and the author is Peter Stubbley. Sorry about that. It's an attempt to cast the um, uh, <clears throat> the Ripper murders into some sort of context. Uh, like most books that are pretend that they're not about the Ripper, it spends a fair chunk of time re- re- rehearsing the Ripper again. But once it finally gets to its ostensible subject matter, it does a a fairly good job of running down what is known about the 20 or 30 murders. Uh, it's hard to say exactly, because when you find a body with no hands uh, popping up out of the Thames, you're not sure what year they were murdered in. Um, and they found any number of pieces of bodies popping up out of the Thames in the 1888 and the immediately surrounding era. So many that I have a different book called Thames Torso Murders, which is just about that cycle of, of murders that was also uh, um, uh, probably not con- conducted by the Ripper. And this talks about everything from sort of domestic violence crimes all the way down to, you know, weird things that no one knows who killed them either. Uh, so it takes on the sort of general context of what uh, crime and crime fighting were like during that era. Yeah. But when you look at the, the statistics in the back, the, the Ripper had a, a slight but measurable impact on, on, the, on the homicide rate in, in, in London. Although, again, 1888, even without the Ripper, was apparently a good year to murder someone and not get caught. Uh, well, if we ever need to bump off someone in your time machine, we'll know where to head. Mm-hmm. Um, on a similar note, we have Necropolis, London and It's Dead by Catherine Arnold. Yeah, that's a general survey of cemeteries and burial in London, which... While Bookhounds of London is behind me, I think that it would be the uh, work of someone who didn't know me very well to presume that that was the last thing I was ever going to write that might involve dead things in London. So I figure it's it's worth picking up as against that happy next day. And finally, and also on a similar note, The Dracula Secrets, uh, Jack the Ripper and the Darkest Sources of Bram Stoker by Neil R. Story. 
Yes, Neil R. Story uh, takes exception to the fact that ripperologists um, uh, uh, call him the Tumble Tea Man because he's the guy who found a memo uh, from one of the many uh, failed British attempts to figure out who was the ripper about uh, an American abortionist and con man named Francis Tumble Tea who uh, <laughs> fits geographically the ripper if in no other way and has therefore been seized on by American ripperologists who all feel very much left out as the real Jack the Ripper because no... British person is awesome enough to be Jack the Ripper or something like that. Well, you know, America is the shining city on the hill. It's true. And our serial killers, just like everything else we do, are better than other people's. But rather than being uh, happy with our buddy H.H. Holmes, who a different uh, descendant of Holmes is now claiming was Jack the Ripper, which I I can't wait for his book to come out, uh, this guy uh, goes back to Tumble Tea and because of a possible connection between Tumble Tea and Bram Stoker via Bram Stoker's BFF the completely forgotten novelist Hall Kane, uh, or rather remembered only for being Bram Stoker's BFF, uh, believes that we can now say for sure that Bram Stoker not only knew that Tumblety was the Ripper, but hinted at it continuously through the rest of his fiction, including, of course, in Dracula, and the fact that in 1901, in the Icelandic edition of Dracula, he mentions the Whitechapel murders, is considered uh, the smoking gun of solid proof in this <laughs> genre of literary criticism. Um, I have not read enough literary criticism to note if the entire field is built on that kind of meretricious nonsense, but this does pr- uh, promise to be very useful for the Dracula dossier, which is coming up for uh, Nice Black Agents. We'll have to do a, a comparative study of nonsense uh, occurring in different fields at some point and do a segment on which has more crazy speculation, the Ripperology or the Nazi occult or a bunch of other candidates. But uh, I think at this point I've illustrated why it is so much fun to uh, go to a, a bookstore or bookstores with you in London. And it's a uh, long past time to close up this combo travel advisory and Ken's bookshelf segment. Now, because hut erection is cheap around here, I erect yet another new hut, because this was a subject that I couldn't quite figure which existing hut to fit it in, considering that it crosses uh, real-life mythology and film and narrative and uh, psychology. So let's just call this the mythology hut. And I thought that since this episode is scheduled to drop uh, during our last day of existence on December 21st, 2012, when a new cycle begins and we all stop being uh, creatures formed out of maize whose purpose in life is to deliver blood energy to the gods and uh, to discuss the uh, state of the apocalypse uh, 2012. Of course, we've had this uh, so-called Mayan calendar apocalypse hanging over us for many years, uh, long enough for people to attach all sorts of bull goose lunacy to it. And I thought we could uh, zoom out from uh, there to uh, see what our current apocalyptic obsessions tell us about our present psyche. Uh, So, uh, Ken, how would you class the current apocalyptic mania in the history of apocalyptic manias? Well, the current apocalyptic mania um, is interesting given that it is an apocalyptic mania that is almost all sort of uh, tourist-driven, I think. I mean, in in the sense that there is no genuine apocalypse hanging over us 
to be all exercised about. Certainly not uh, from the perspective of someone like myself who came of age during the Cold War. And, you know, when we had an apocalypse, my God, we had an apocalypse. You know, the, the actual extirpation of all life on Earth. That was our apocalypse. And uh, global warming, uh, as uh, god-awful as it may or may not be, is not going to do that. It's not even going to extirpate, you know, humanity, even industrial humanity. And therefore, uh, even if it does all of the awful things that uh, wake Al Gore up in a cold sweat, it's just not a patch on nuclear annihilation. And so without a proper apocalypse, I think that there is a, a sort of... Um, a deracinated search for new apocalypses, apocalyptes, by the fundamentally secular culture drivers of our society. And so people seize on sort of imaginary and new age apocalypses like this one. They, they find a new exciting mythic, myth of the apocalypse in the zombie uh, story. And, uh, they're, they're just, it, it doesn't seem to be as, as, uh, as real world or as interesting as the apocalypses of the of the Cold War, uh, certainly on a sociological level, and it doesn't, you know, obviously have the the, the mythic punch of, you know, the you know revelation of Saint John or any of the other uh, terrific apocalypses that you get if you are a believing member of one of the uh, Abrahamic or other apocalyptic faiths. What interests me about this uh, new round of apocalyptic frenzy is the, as you suggested, the degree to which it is sort of not just detached from pre-existing mythologies, but you can't really trace where all of these memes come from. That obviously there's uh, someone seized on the idea that this, that the Mayan calendar ends on a particular date. And of course it, A, doesn't end. It, it means that a new historical cycle begins. And that's uh, something that they have in common with all sorts of other cultures that uh, conceive existence in these grand sort of cosmic scales are certainly other Mayan calendars that have been discovered that, you know, continue on uh, past uh, December 12, 2012. And, uh, you know, if we ended the world based on how far my calendar went, we'd been in big trouble. Um, and there's a lot of weird things going on, and it sort of suggests that we have a continual sort of solipsistic desire to think of the world as ending, or at least a, you know, a small fringe number of uh fundamentally paranoid, self-dramatizing people want to feel that everything is going to end, and they will seek out something and attach themselves to it. Uh, one interesting thing is that previously, in uh, through their thousands of years of recorded history, Chinese culture has not had apocalyptic mania, but there are people stocking up and uh, hoarding stuff and building shelters now, and that's because of the popularity of the movie 2012. And uh, that's uh, definitely an example of the uh, pop culture uh, cart driving the paranoid horse. Yeah, the, um, the 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 great Chinese apocalypse, of course, was a was a Christianized import in the Taiping Rebellion. Um, the the Chinese, I mean, ever since Confucius sort of explained away the general ruck of constant apocalypse that the Chinese lived under as evidence of the mandate of heaven going away from the current emperor, they sort of haven't, uh, haven't bothered to um, concern themselves with it uh, that much, which is, you know, again, given that these are guys who actually have, you know, potentially civilization-ending catastrophes happening every 30 or 40 years, they're, they're remarkably restrained in coming up with apocalyptic uh, beliefs. I think that may well be that, you know, you don't have to make them up in, in Chinese history that... Uh, 
uh, really it's the other way around that you're going to you're going to fantasize that uh, nothing is going to happen to you. Uh, interestingly, there are a couple of sites around the world that have gotten a lot of uh, wanted or unwanted attention in Serbia. Uh, Mount Ratanj, uh, which is a very large pyramidal mountain, which has a, a hotel dug into it, has been besieged with people who want to. Uh, stay there during the uh, supposed apocalypse because they think it's going to survive and perhaps be a locus of energy when the aliens come down or somehow it's going to be missed by the uh, 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 imaginary planet that's supposed to have been hiding behind the sun for the last seven years is going to deke around and hit us. And uh, there's also a, a French town called uh, Bougarac, uh where there's a similar mountain in the Pyrenees that is for no reason that anyone has quite managed to trace a focus of uh, new age uh, interest and anxiety. And in that town, of a, it's actually a village of 197 people. They've had to uh, restrict uh, small plane flights and they're doing their best to discourage people from showing up because, of course, there's no accommodations for uh, thousands of uh, apocalypse-seeking uh, uh, folk. And... Uh, they're quite disgruntled by the fact that somebody somewhere in some uh, book or internet posting decided that they were a uh, apocalyptic hotspot, and now they have to deal with the real world uh, fallout of that. And of course, that's um, one of the disturbing things about these waves of hysteria is there often are real people who are uh, really hurt, whether it's people who give away all of their possessions and then their uh, kids are stuck with nothing and aren't able to go to college to the point of people who, you know, attempt uh, suicide or attempt to kill their kids, which is, uh, you know, an example of just how it, it seems like an absurd impulse on people to seek disaster and to seek the end of the world and to convince themselves that it's coming. And there must be some deep need that that's serving, but it certainly has a, a huge dark side. It's not just uh, all uh, fun and games for us uh, unbelievers to uh, laugh at. Yeah, the, uh, the, the certainly you know any sort of millenarianism has a a strong urge to do violence to make yourself worthy of the of the coming uh, new age, whatever it happens to be, and that was true not only of uh, you know modern day uh, UFO cultists and uh, twenty twelve aficionados, but it was it's true of millenarian movements pretty much throughout history, not just the Taiping Rebellion in China, but the cargo cults in. Uh, Melanesia, the various uh, uh, apocalyptic beliefs amongst the Josa of South Africa, that uh, the Rinder Pest Plague and the coming of the British in, uh, spelled the end of the world. And so they, you know, slaughtered their calves and killed all the unbelievers who didn't believe that the, uh, that the new uh, Josa of Paradise was coming. You have things like the, um, uh, the, the apocalyptic sect that took over Munster in Germany and did their little, um, uh, uh, preview of the Khmer Rouge in in Cambodia, which likewise had a sort of an apocalyptic belief that uh, this a purely secular apocalypse that the that the year zero was beginning and it was time to sort of uh, expunge all uh, all uh, ideological impurity from Cambodia, so as to create the new world free of sin. Uh, Hitler's uh, military strategy, once he figured out that the war was lost. Uh, to the extent he ever did, was driven by a belief that Germany had to be destroyed in order for the new Germany to emerge out of it. And so uh, the, 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 the seemingly uh, mad uh, attempts to um, uh, throw away the lives of his entire country, uh, stopping you know the, the Soviets and the Americans, things that obviously could not be stopped by any force present in the world at that time, uh, it, it was driven again by that sort of 
uh, belief that uh, in order to be worthy of the New Age, we have to suffer a great deal. And of course, that comes down in a more etiolated form with the belief that uh, we have to, you know, um, uh, go back and live in sod huts or else the global warming uh, fairy will get us, or we have to um, uh, go off in the, the Bitterroot Mountains somewhere and live on spelt and uh, shotgun ammunition or else the, the, the red Chinese will get us. And then you get the whole syndrome of what happens to a movement that's organized around the end of the world when the world stubbornly refuses to end. And there you get, uh, for example, the Millerites, who uh, went on to become the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, which is an example of a, you know, still uh, fairly well-known uh, religious denomination that grew out of an apocalyptic mania. And there certainly is, uh, although I don't think that there's any way to know for sure, there are plenty of theologians who say that a lot of the, the, the prophecies in the, the Gospels uh, are evidence that early Christianity was an apocalyptic cult, that it believed that uh, the crucifixion of Jesus marked sort of, you know, the, the, the end times are coming and his prophecy that, uh, you know, the, the son of man would come while son of you are, are still alive was taken very seriously. And that once there was no apocalypse short of the utter destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army, uh, that Christianity perforce had to sort of rejigger its priorities. And that that's a lot of the reasons that St. Paul's, uh, sort of, um, uh, theological and ethical, uh, and, and moral, uh, departures from uh, Orthodox Judaism took hold in Christianity, which at that point was still a Jewish heretical sect. Well, in fact, that's an example of how the original apocalyptic impulse was changed to become about the end of the world, that the apocalypse was not uh, originally conceived uh, either in the Jewish tradition or in the early Christian tradition as the world ending or as a catastrophic disaster or a catastrophe, certainly for everyone who didn't believe what the believers believed, but was rather a uh, incursion and a, a divine inbreak of uh, God or his representatives uh, into uh, earthly life in order to uh, lay low the enemies of the of first the Jewish people and then of the Christian people, and that it was only after that did not seem to be taking place that it took on this increasingly uh, darker spin with all of the uh, horrific imagery that you uh, get in the book of Revelation. You, uh, of course, need to keep in mind that the book of Revelation was written, uh, it didn't spring de novo out of uh, St. John. It was written between 90 and 100 AD. It comes out of the, a lot of these same traditions that while, as you uh, point out, are not mainstream traditions in uh, Jewish uh, belief, are certainly present and are present in the exact kind of uh, uh, turmoil about the culture and questions about, you know, the, the, the future of uh, their familiar society that caused things like the cargo cults and that caused, to a lesser extent, things like the Millerite uh, belief that the world was going to end uh, because all these crazy factories and canals kept getting built in upstate New York. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely not a uh, sudden break with what went before so much as a really interesting sort of inversion that came absolutely out of that tradition, but it's uh, flavor very much changed from the uh, original instance of the concept to what has been passed down to us today, which is something that very often happens with original concepts. And uh, on that note, I guess we have uh, uh, contemplated the end of the world, so I hope that this segment uh, did not cut out in the middle as the uh, comet struck the Earth, and uh, if not, uh, we're ready for our next segment.
it's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jury Horniman asks Ken and Robin, if you are going to do a play-by-forum Pathfinder campaign, Skulls and Shackles in particular, and maybe you found the Pathfinder rules not well suited to playing that way, asterisk, what system would you choose instead? Lorefinder? Fate? Something else? And the asterisk continues in a uh, classic of... Um, uh, uh, I'm not saying nothing. I'm just saying. But there is a. This is a bit of a passive-aggressive asterisk, I must say. Yeah, and maybe you had some people or one loud person in your group who object to the amount of numbers and tables and rules in Pathfinder because they've never played anything more complex than World of Darkness before. <coughs> uh, cough very much sick in the original. Yes. Um, well, first of all, I would ask myself what the strengths of the medium are, and the medium in this case is a play-by-forum post in which you are presumably each person is writing a, a chunk of text and then waiting for enough other people to write a chunk of text in order to continue. And the advantage of that over, say, a text chat game is that everyone is paying attention at least while they're writing and that you can all sort of come back to it when you have the time and attention. And I would question the extent to which... Uh, Either of those formats is really the ideal form for a game so full of glorious self-justifying crunch as Pathfinder that the things that are fun about that game and about the crunch of that game, uh, I think, require you to be interacting in real time, or at least they impose an additional impediment to to the fun uh, if you are... Uh, you know, at the point of, okay, well, now I make my attack of opportunity. And uh, uh, if unless you're imagining everybody on a, on a battle mat together, I'm not sure what the uh, glorious uh, complexity and an answer for everything ethos of that rule set does for you in that format. I'm not even sure how you run a combat in a play-by-forum thing. I, I know how you do it in, in sort of a, a real-time chat. You just, you know, make everyone... Uh, roll their dice in the thing, or you use a, an emulator or a, or an, a facilitator like the uh, like the D twenty table or Inferno or one of those, and you know it, it works uh, pretty well. Or or you do a Google Plus and trust everyone to uh, roll their dice honestly, or use one of the little die rolly devices. Uh, the, the Google Plus chat, as I found out in Los Angeles, is another great uh, methodology for doing uh, live role playing with people who aren't there. But so anything with combat in it, or especially with something that has that, uh, as you mentioned, glorious uh, tactical combat feel that Pathfinder does, I can't imagine doing that as play-by-forum. I mean, y you either have to write a, a crazy decision tree as your, as your combat move, or you just have to say, look, I'm a fifth-level uh, paladin, I'm going to slaughter everyone and take this much damage arbitrarily. I, I can't even imagine how you would do it. And if you're going to have the GM basically do it all for you behind the scenes, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the GM really enjoys uh, rolling everybody's dice and, and moving everybody for what would essentially be a two- or three-hour combat and then revealing the outcome. But I think that you would want to boil that down into a series of choice points, and to the extent that you want to take an off-the-rack tabletop RPG to do that, I would look for something as simple as possible. And, and Fate, I think, is a, a good example of a less crunchy game that a lot of people are familiar with and love. I can you know, certainly think of games that I've designed myself that are simple enough to run in that forum, but I think that you uh, want to set aside, I, I would imagine, 
thought of the rules in general and just look at, you know, what are the decisions people are making? And there are certain experiences that I think really sing in a text format. For example, a game that is largely about ex exploration and seeing things and interacting with an environment might actually be more interesting in a play-by-forum format than they are necessarily in even in face-to-face -face play because you can then uh, describe uh, everything that people are uh, interacting with in a in a vivid way that you can't so much off the top of your head or you don't want to read big chunks of prepared text. But if you're really taking the time to do interesting, engaging writing, that you want to uh, look at a system that facilitates that and, and gets out of the way and leaves you the uh, time and uh, focus for what that does well, which is uh, description, either description of what people are seeing or doing or how they're interacting with each other, and that you probably want to abstract it down into, uh, you know, a series of choice points so that the pacing doesn't elongate forever, because otherwise, you know, you could spend six years doing a first-level dungeon crawl where you're fighting, uh, you know, dire rats and carrion crawlers. Yeah, the um, I know, for example, that the, the games that the privilege sort of emotional response uh, work really well, or, or uh, sort of uh, seemingly spontaneous but brilliantly thought-out dialogue. So uh, Amber uh, Diceless is, is a really strong uh, candidate for play-by-forum play. A lot of people have, have played that that I know. And uh, I imagine you could do that with World of Darkness pretty well. You could do it with other, other games. And ironically, I think that there's a lot of people playing... Not, not that ironically. Uh, there are people playing uh, Call of Cthulhu and other sort of Cthulhu-y games in play-by-forum because in this case, no one expects to survive the combat. And so you're a lot, you, you've already made that sort of social contract decision that the GM is going to uh, tell you what happens once you the, you decide to stand and face the Shoggoth instead of run away like a sensible person. And that's another area that text does really well is the creation of uh, emotional atmosphere that you get in a a uh, great horror story is, again, perhaps easier to convey uh, in just straight text format without everybody sitting around telling jokes and the distraction of people crunching their snacks or, or whatever it is that if you are, uh, everybody's just communicating by text that you can uh, get a much tighter emotional effect based on that fact. And you, there's always uh, other kind of things that you can do on top of that. You could go to sort of an epistolary format where you're moving more into the realm of uh, collaborative fiction where each of you sort of advances the story a little bit uh, and possibly there's a negotiation when you disagree about which way the story is going. Yeah, the, uh, friends of mine, uh, when Castle Falkenstein was a thing, were running a Castle Falkenstein game that was basically a play-by-forum or play-by-post in which people would write each other letters and write diary entries explaining what had already happened. And they would say, well, you may remember that you won that sword fight, but as I remember it, you were a drunken buffoon and had to be pulled away by the guards and that kind of thing. And so it, it really privileged, you know, A, having the last word and B, being a smartass. And which, if you're trying to emulate that sort of uh, 19th century adventure fiction, kind of works. I, I think that if I were doing um, something like uh, trying to get back to the actual question as opposed to saying what they should be playing, if I was doing anything like a standard fantasy-type campaign, what I might want to do is look for a system of whatever it is that provides large-scale battle resolution. And that could be, you know, even you know going all the way back to the early chainmail rules. Something where, yeah, you have one hero, he's worth X number of points, he can take on X number of other bad guys. 
and it's a it, more of a war game than it is anything else. Or you do something like the GURPS mass combat rules, or the I think Savage Worlds has a has a pretty strong uh, 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 fast combat track system. Uh, you you find something like that where you can abstract the combat down to a single batch of die rolls, and then your decision input maybe is how many of my hit points do I want to gamble on this combat? And so you would say to the the GM, you know, well, well this is a really important, uh, you know, room full of skeletons. We really have to push through it. I'm going to commit 45% of my paladins uh, 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 hit points and great cleaves to this. And your buddy says, yeah, I'm going to commit 20% of my mages uh, offensive spells to this. And your cleric buddy says, okay, I'm going to keep 30% of my uh, healing factor available for this, and then you run run through, and the GM says, oh, it was such a walkover that you only used half of that amount, or no, it was a really brutal uh, thing, and uh, you can either escalate or you can back out of the room, and maybe that's the way to do it, and the GM sort of describes the combat as a more abstracted system of combat does it. I, I think that the problem is not uh, that, um, uh, you know, a lore finder or fate are necessarily going to drive that faster, because both of those break down the combat into the same sort of tabletopy excitement. I think what you need is something that actually abstracts the combat. And for that, I would my instinct is to go to war game rules, mass combat rules, something like that. Yeah, I think it would be very interesting as an exercise to purpose build a, a rule set for this media of play so that uh, you are structuring all of the decision points so that uh, the players all get inputs and are making choices, but that they're not bogged down by the details that become extraneous or overextended in this format. And so uh, it would have, as you mentioned, a very abstract uh, physical combat system that uh, would be tailored for skirmishes, but resolve very quickly and make allow you to make, you know, all of your decisions up front and sort of pre-program them. And then you would use a very simple resolution system to see how those all play out. And maybe there would be two sets of decision points that it would break down into the, it would take you to the middle of the battle and then you would get to survey and see how your first set of choices worked. And then you'd based on the new situation, you make a second set of choices so that there's enough suspense in there that you feel like you're engaged in whatever the point of uh, drama or excitement or conflict is, whether it's a fight or a, uh, a debate or, or whatever it is, and then allow people to, uh, you know, very clearly make almost sort of multiple choice style uh, decisions and then see how those play out so that it is uh, your uh, choices that you make that influence the direction of the narrative rather than a rule system that's sort of running in the background and you don't have enough chances to get handsy with all of its uh, uh, bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that you'd, you'd wind up with the feel being more like a turn-based uh, combat game. Uh, where you know you've, you've you've loaded everything into the hopper, and it's, it was your choice what to load and, and what sort of um, uh, b uh, loadout to have, and then the in in, in, a, in a in a computer game the computer you know does the math and tells you what happened to your tanks or whatnot, but in this case the GM would do it, and like like you say the the advantage would be that you could uh, have the GM would would know to to pause it at a dramatic choice point. You know, do you move further in or do you pull back and, and regroup? Well, having uh, inched our tentacular way toward an answer to that question, to the extent we were able, I think it's time to move on to our uh, final segment of the show.
segment is once again consulting a cultist. Uh, several episodes ago, Ken, you alluded to that much more interesting 17th century French Satanism, uh, which will therefore become our uh, topic for this episode of Consulting Occultists. So, Ken, hey, what about that much more interesting 17th century French Satanism? Well, the more interesting 17th century French Satanism is better known uh, to historians as the Affair of the Poisons. Uh, it is a huge, I mean, huge murder scandal, poison ring, whatever you want to call it, uh, that happened in the court of Louis the Fourteenth, in uh, between 1677 and 1682, Wikipedia tells me, uh, in what is the a remarkably uh, boring uh, article for something that is as fascinating as the affair of the poisons. But there you go; they can't all be gems, I suppose. Uh, this, uh, this began when uh, they were in uh, they were investigating a uh, a woman who had uh, uh, conspired to poison her father. And her name was Madame de Brinvilliers, and when she was uh, put on trial, she named a number of people as uh, sort of uh, co-conspirators and, uh, and, and uh, associates of hers in this particular poisoning, uh, which sort of worked its way up the, up the, uh, up the level of, of French jurisprudence to the point that uh, a number of them were nobles and a number of them were uh, important people. And they began sort of looking after these people and arrested another couple of folks who named more names. And it got to sort of the center of the ring, apparently, was a woman named Catherine Deshayes, uh, La Voisin, who was a midwife and abortionist and uh, herbalist to the, uh, the, the great and the good. And among them, among her clients was the king's mistress, Madame de Montespan. Now, in history, it's easier to be accused of being a Satanist than to actually turn out to be one. So uh, what evidence did we have that these uh, people uh, thought of themselves as uh, serving Satan? Uh, the evidence that we have is sadly the evidence of the court, which is, uh, given the standards of French jurisprudence, not going to convince anyone. And certainly none of them uh, wrote uh, self-justifying books saying, uh, that Satan is really just a misunderstood life principle or something. They all uh, uh, claim to be wrongfully accused, as one would if one was a real Satanist, certainly. But the fact that so many people got off uh, in the investigation implies that there was at least some degree of honesty to the questioning. It wasn't just, you know, you've been accused, therefore you're going to be hung, like Salem. It was a... Uh, it, it was, at, at, at some level, a, a, a judicial inquiry. Um, the way that they got the names out of La Voisin was not torture, but, but by keeping her drunk. So it was sort of a 17th century truth serum. Uh, and um, the uh, uh, there was a defrocked priest involved, which is one of the necessaries for your proper black mass, a name of, a name of uh, Etienne Guibourg. And the the actual evidence of uh, of the black mass, like I say, comes pretty much entirely from confessions and accusations. It does not come from any sort of uh, of outside record. But again, the court itself uh, was known as the Chambre Ardente, the burning court, because there were no windows in the courtroom. It was lit only by torches uh, to prevent anyone from finding out what happened in it. And since it's implicating the king's mistress as a possible Satanist, uh, certain abortionist and a uh, uh, possible client of poisoners, that's the kind of thing that you don't want to keep any evidence of. So even if any evidence had been found, it would have been destroyed by the order of the Chambre Ardente. 
Now, uh, was there any indication, though, that there was uh, some sort of uh, political uh, machination behind the scenes? Because often if high-level people are being accused of uh, witchcraft or Satanism, that's a convenient way to accuse them and uh, get them out of the way. And often when uh, fairly low-level people are accused of witchcraft or Satanism, it is because there is uh, something unconventional about them, whether they are uh, uh, drunkards or uh, exhibit various signs of what we would recognize today as mental illness. Uh, well, again, this being the French aristocracy, finding mental illness is probably easier than not. Uh, the, I mean, the fact of the matter is that there is, in pre-birth uh, control societies, there's going to be a thriving trade in abortion material. And the uh, chemical facts of abortifacients are that they're also, obviously, strong poisons. Uh, also, a society like France that has uh, primogeniture, in which the uh, uh, oldest son inherits uh, the entire fortune on the death of the uh, father, is also going to drive a degree of um, uh, capital into the poisoning field. So there are almost certainly, you know, a substrate of poisoners and abortionists constantly present in any functioning society in, you know, since the invention of, of property and poisons. Yeah, so th that's not the extraordinary claim, but he means yeah. that there are, are poisoners. But the question is, uh, were these poisoners, in fact, self-identified Satanists? And... Uh, if so, what uh, impact did that have in terms of people's uh, response to Satanism? Or what was it that, if this is a more interesting form of Satanism, is it interesting for anything other than the uh, really interesting case and the poisoning ring uh, to which the S word was attached? The, uh, the, to me, the interesting thing, first of all, is that the testimony from this case, uh, to the extent that we have it, is the sort of or document of what a black mass is supposed to look like in the high age with the naked uh, woman on the altar and the, the profaned host and all of the other delirious Dennis Wheatley details that one likes in a, in a black mass. So it is interesting, first of all, for, for uh, on the sort of history of religions aspect of it. And then second of all, it's interesting because of the, the sort of the cast of characters. I mean, this is one of the great ages of France. It's, it's, it's France at its absolute height. The people are not so powerful or so big a threat to Louis Fourteenth that he would be ginning up a series of accusations. And if there are any sort of individual uh, rivals being, um, uh, being done uh, dirt by the various accusers, it is, you know, by now a fairly obscure point of, uh, of question. The, uh, the only sort of um, really important people that get dragged into it, besides uh, Madame de Montespan, are the uh, Count and Countess of Soissons, I believe, and the, um, uh, the uh, uh, and, and again, these are not, you know, sort of A-list uh, figures, even in, in, in the French nobility at the time. Uh, they, uh, it, it does wind up driving, according to uh, Wikipedia, which should be correct, on this, driving the son of the Countess of Soissons to enter the uh, military service of the Habsburgs. And when you lose the service of Prince Eugen of Savoy, uh, you wind up uh, guaranteeing that you're one great general short when you try and conquer all of Europe in the next 30 years. As the maxim goes. Yes. But in, in, the, the thing that I find interesting, first of all, it's a much you know higher class of Satanist than your, your modern um, uh, circus people. 
and it also it, it's just you know these are these are really hardcore uh, accusations and beliefs. It's not it, it's not a, a you know a, a bastardization of Nietzsche. It's it's honest to God um, uh, astrology and black magic, and the people who are conducting these sorts of uh, affairs when they hire out a, an, an abortionist or a or a um, uh, or a poisoner, they are hiring someone who is in a state of mortal sin. They are, in their own mind, dealing with someone who is fundamentally an agent of the devil. Whether or not the person is actually uh, dressing up in, in black robes and profaning virgins or not, the, the people involved have a much stronger understanding of the, of the theological consequences of their actions, and to some extent, even the moral consequences of their actions, because the, uh, the, the overarching um, uh, religious atmosphere of France at that time is it's omnipresent. I mean, there aren't, you know, there there are no atheists in foxholes, and there are no, and there are very few atheists um, uh, in a Catholic monarchy. Although the Catholic monarchy in this particular case had just gone through a fairly dramatic uh, raft of heresy with the Jansenist uh, controversy, and that I suspect a historian of religions could probably tumble a uh, connection between Jansenism. Uh, the you know the generation before and this outbreak of Satanism amongst uh, middle nobility and uh, members of the king's court. And so, is your uh, feeling that this was uh, that these black masses were actually going on, and that people actually uh, considered themselves to be practicing Satanists? Is this the uh, consensus of historians, or is there a division on that question? Uh, sadly, there are, there does not seem to be a lot of historians who have paid a lot of attention to it one way or the other. Um, it's, uh, I think it's generally considered sort of an unsolved mystery, was Montespan guilty type thing, and then that leads into questions of, were any of these people, uh, self-aware Satanists? I know that certainly in the, um, uh, New Age community, broadly speaking, that this is yet another case of having your, uh, your your poison cake and eating it too, in that the acts of the Chambre Ardente are taken simultaneously as evidence of the horrible church and state uh, oppressing witchcraft, and the existence of a giant 400-person witchcraft ring in the court of Louis XIV is uh, taken on the basis of the church and state's argument to that effect. So um, I think that real historians, the only one that I've read that's a real historian, is a, is a woman named Anne Somerset who wrote a book called The Affair of the Poisons, which is a fairly terrific uh, uh, sort of skeptical true crime piece on it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of dead people, so there, there are some poisoning yes. going on, perhaps. Um, and her basic argument is that um, the, the sort of, a lot of what we have now is uh, exciting court gossip and rumor that gets spread. And so, for example, uh, Love Voisin, uh, does not have uh, thousands of dead babies buried in her back garden, is that kind of thing. And so when Ann Somerset says, well, A, it's not that big a garden, and B, no one ever bothered to dig it up and find any babies dead or alive in any number. So I, she's more of a voice of, of skepticism and, uh, and, and uh, cool water thrown on the, on the French court's gossip machine. But even Ann Somerset says, yes, honest to God, there is murder, there is infanticide, there is a ring of abortionists and poisoners, and very possibly there is people who, having gone to this level of moral degradation, having fallen as far from the light of God in their eyes 
as, uh, you know, poisoning people and killing babies are now saying, why not go whole fig and try and get some earthly power out of it? I mean, since I've already damned in the sight of God, let's ask Satan if he can hook me up. And so whether it really happened or whether it was a, a colorful accusation, uh, added as icing to uh, horrible but quotidian crimes, uh, this created the imagery that has come down to us as the sort of staple set of tropes surrounding Satanism. Yeah. And another, uh, I think, in, in, in sort of a, a, not a, you know, a, a silver bullet argument, but the fact that this does not occur so very often. There are not hordes of Satanist accusations leveled against uh, rival French nobility. There are not huge ascriptions of black masses attached to every, you know, uh, quotidian ring of poisoners or abortionist in Europe in the uh, early modern era is an argument that there is more going on here than in your average um, uh, uh, poison grandpa and collect the knighthood type behavior. Because if it was a standard accusation, you'd think people would be making it in more standard fashion. So either there is something specific about France that is driving the accusers to hallucinate or uh, try and derive this tale of a black mass, or there is something special about the criminals under investigation. And it may just be that Lavoisin had read uh, some long-forgotten horror novel and uh, decided to go whole hog in her drunken uh, testimony, or it may be that in this particular case, the, uh, the, the, the glories of uh, Louis XIV's court had produced among all the other Rococo uh, effects in architecture and music that it produced, it also produced a Rococo effect in occultism, which is my preferred interpretation. Uh, well, I'm not sure whether... Uh, I think I'm divided here as to whether I prefer the uh, my skeptical interpretation, which is that we see uh, at numerous points in history a, a rare but repeated phenomenon where uh, an antisocial force gets this additional incendiary level of accusation attached to it, and it needs certain conditions in order to to grow and feed, and uh, that uh, versus, of course, my uh, genre desire to have the world be uh, more colorful and uh, crazier, and to think that, yes, indeed, at one point in history, there might have been a bunch of people who decided to be all of the horrible things that were previously just imagined. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the, you could make an argument that this is another case of the formation of the persecuting society, that there are elements in this in the accusations against the Cathars or the accusations against the, the Bogomils. But you can also make the argument that if anyone is going to deliberately adopt the, um, uh, the, 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 the garb, if you will, the, the, the attitudes of the um uh, of the alleged uh, uh cathars and alleged devil worships uh devil worshiping heretics it would be french aristocrats uh well i guess we're going to have to uh leave that to the uh, question mark of history and further research and perhaps even the time machine but i uh, believe we've uh, successfully consulted the occultist one more time Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelagrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com, where you may hail us as your post-apocalyptic warlords. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff. 